This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, July 24, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. today's podcast, we talk with Ray Reed, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 2nd District of Missouri, an area near the St. Louis area, but not quite within the city itself. In the rural areas, it follows county lines, but in the metropolitan area, it twists and turns going around certain structures here and there and down the middle of neighborhood streets, separating neighbors. It's really a cartographer's challenge. We'll talk about it in a minute, but first, a message from the League of Women Voters. Be an informed voter. If your state hasn't yet had a primary vote, then plan the vote on that day. Missouri's primary is on August 2nd, by the way. Whether voting in the primary or the general, go to vote411.org for a nonpartisan guide about the candidates and issues that you'll see on your ballot. Again, that address is vote411.org. And speaking of voting, have you ever thought that your vote doesn't count? With all the money dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for the candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. In fact, major news organizations measure the worth of a candidate by how much money he or she can raise, and often they don't even give any airtime to candidates unless they can prove they've raised a certain amount of cash. This gives enormous power and influence to money in our political system. And worse, it injects corruption into our government. If you're concerned about it, join Move to Amend, an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Join Move to Amend and help create a move toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with Ray Reed, who, as I mentioned, is running for the U.S. Congress in the 2nd Congressional District of Missouri. He's running in a red district, but it's been shifting significantly blue in the past few election cycles. The Missouri State Legislature, which is dominated by Republicans, used the recent census as an opportunity to further gerrymander the district by including more rural areas in the West. Well, will it be enough to keep the district from turning blue? I don't know, but we'll find out. Ray Reed, who joins us at this time, is part of what we call Generation Y.1, perhaps bordering on Gen Z. Uh, If elected to Congress, he'll be among the youngest representatives in Washington. Ray is running as a Democrat. He believes that change doesn't come from Washington. Rather, change comes to Washington. Ray has an ambitious background. He studied political science at the University of Central Missouri and became a campus leader for the It's On Us campaign, which fights sexual assaults on campus. In 2016, Ray joined the policy team of Missouri's Governor Nixon and assisted senior staff with bill reviews, clemency applications, and board and commission appointments. In 2018, he joined the Missouri Democratic Party's staff, organizing for House and Senate candidates across Missouri. During this time with the state party, he visited every part of the state to help push the party forward. So, Ray, with that introduction, uh, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Hey, Dan. Thank you for having me. Um, 
it's a pretty long list, huh? <laughs> it is. For uh, for your what were you twenty five or twenty six now? Twenty five years old. Yeah, twenty five. That's a pretty good resume already. That's good. That's good. So let's get into it. Uh, why are you running? And, and and let me preface this a little bit more by by asking, what are the big issues that compel you to put it all on the line and send yourself out there day after day to campaign for this office? Yeah, you know, after the 2020 election, I set up a bonfire with a bunch of friends in Kirkwood, a, a suburb of St. Louis. And, you know, we just talked about the issues that we care about. You know, we care about universal health care. We care about reproductive rights. We care about student loan forgiveness. We care about union rights. And what stood between me and working on those issues was a federal office. And I sat in a congressional district where, well, I was born and raised in a congressional district. Um, that was the closest in the country between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, uh, you know, decided by only 115 votes. But our congressional candidate lost by about 30,000 votes. Um, so, you know, I believed that, you know, we couldn't run the same type of politicians. It took someone, you know, a little exciting, someone who could inspire the district to uh, inspire more folks in the district and reach a lot of voters than Ann Wagner previously reached in, uh, reached in previous uh, elections. So. Yeah, we just decided, you know, uh, if no one else would stand up, we would stand up and we'd fight for the district. You know, we always knew that this district would have to encompass a large part of St. Louis County. So there's still a whole lot of Democrats in this district. And for the parts of the district, the new district that's uh, Franklin and Warren County, people say are red and they kind of write them off. You know, we don't write off any voter. We believe that the folks in the rural areas aren't necessarily hard to reach. Uh, they just feel hardly reached by our current politicians. So it's our job to go in there and make our case for Democrats. Yeah. How do you do that in, the, in a rural area? Because, you know, it, it, isn't there something to this uh, stereotype that says rural voters are normally red? Is that necessarily true in, in Missouri? I, you know, I don't think it's true because no matter where you come from in America, everyone wants to make sure that there's food on their table, that there's a roof over their head, that their kids can go to school and be safe. Um, and at every single turn, our current Congresswoman has shown that she has more interest in serving Wall Street than she does here in Missouri's second district. You know, we kind of nickname her the Congressman of Wall Street. Uh, so we just go in there and we tell their story. You know, President, President Obama, gave us the blueprint for these midterms. He said, Democrats have a story. We just got to tell it. And part of that is telling the story of the Republican Party as well. Uh, you know, these last two years under President Biden's leadership, we've made great strides in, in pushing the needle towards progress here in America. And the very theme, the very point of the Republican Party and all of their candidates is to stand in opposition to all the progress that we want to build on, you know, uh, I haven't looked at Ann Wagner's website, but I guarantee you it's something on there about stop Joe Biden or stopping Democrats from doing X, Y, and Z. They don't actually run on anything. So we're going into these areas uh, with clear plans on how we're going to get things done for them. Well, you're right. The, um, I've noticed that, too, that a lot of these Republicans, they it's it's pretty typical. And I, I, I would venture to say the Democrats do it also when the Republicans are in power. It becomes sort of the um, the party that resists, that says, hey, this is really bad. We're going to complain about it. I think the Republicans actually complain a little bit more, but that's just a personal <laughs> thing. But, you know, you'd have some, some pretty big, uh, pretty big uh, 
um, objections to overcome. Uh, you know, you're talking about inflation these days is is uh, is right around eight or nine percent. Um, it is not a countrywide thing. It is a is an international thing. But nevertheless, you know, people will look for the person that has their target on the back, right? And right now, it's all the Democrats. They all have the targets on their backs. It's like, well, we're going to shoot the arrows in that direction because that's the target that we can see. But you also have like uh, uh, border control, which seems to have some challenges now that perhaps didn't have several years ago. And we can get into the reasons why that is. You know, so these what are you going to do about these these big issues? And these are big issues to overcome. Yeah, you know, we are you'll find this out pretty quickly. And, and folks who haven't met me will find out pretty quickly. Uh, I think this might be the theme of my generation. Um, you know, I'm a straight shooter. I'm about as straight a shooter as you'll find in uh, Missouri politics. Um, and I always tell you what I believe and what I think. And I really believe that Secretary uh, Yellen at the Department of Treasury is doing a, a pretty great job at tackling inflation. And I, I expect to see those numbers start to creep down by the fall as we get into holiday uh, the shopping. Um, and on the topic of the border, you know, Congressman Ann Wagner, she had went to the border as if the Mexico southern border is the, the crisis at the border is Missouri's natural is Missouri's number one issue, um, which is just not the case. You know, the whole theme of America, you know, our branding is that we're the melting pot, you know, um, we always, anytime I go in front of a crowd and talk about immigration, I always give the line that um, the Statue of Liberty doesn't stand with her back to the world. She stands and faces the world as a beacon of light, uh, welcoming all who wish for a better life here in this promised land. Um, I think somehow the Republicans forgot about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, in Congress, you know, I want to create a path for citizenship and create immigration policy that deports felons and not families. Um, there's a clear way for us to uh, grant citizenship for everyone who crosses that border, uh, just wishing for a better life here in America. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. Missouri is not a border state. And I've often made fun of people that say things like that, you know, as if they don't know geography. Of course they know geography. But I think what they're saying is more of a, a philosophical sense because when a person comes over the border, it is maybe in the immediate uh, time frame, it is the problem of that state that's on the border. But in a longer time frame, you know, you have other things coming along uh, with that, uh, with that across the border. And we're not just talking about people here. We're talking about, you know, uh, contraband, uh, human trafficking and so on. That, that does become an issue. And I think that does affect uh, the Midwest. It does affect Missouri. Overall, though, there is a problem with uh, drugs coming over the border and and the bad elements coming over the border. And that, that is a Missouri problem, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we can we can address that, but in a responsible way to make sure that, you know, our border patrol officers have the resources they need to to combat a drug coming over the borders uh, over families that are crossing that border. And there's no reason that, you know, the, the pictures we saw under the Trump administration, of those kids in cages was just horrifying in, in modern America. Um, and, you know, Ann Wagner supported policies that would take us back to that, which is just not representative, I believe, of what Missouri's second district, the folks here in the second district believe in and the type yeah. of folks we have here. 
Yeah, I, I, I hope that we can take it, uh, fix this situation, you know, because I, it's somewhat unrelated, but one of the things I was concerned about back during the Iraq and, and uh, the war in Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan is that we were bringing people into Guantanamo. And I was always very uneasy about that because, uh, you know, and I know what was happening or people were getting tortured and it was, uh, it was all being done in our name. And this, to this day, this, and this raises the hairs in the back of my neck. This is not who we are. And yet when Obama took office in, in uh, 2009, after winning the election in 2008, I had high hopes that that would change, that he would, um, you know, at least treat these people as prisoners of war, which is what they were, uh, treat them in accordance with the, with the Geneva Conventions. But still nothing happened, right? I mean, well, a little bit happened. Some people were, were processed, but Guantanamo is still open. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, you know, is, is there something else going on behind the scenes that's, that's uh, brewing either in Guantanamo or in the border with, uh, with Mexico that's keeping us from really becoming the type of nation that we think we can become? Yeah, and I'm not sure, but we know that we'll have a microphone in Congress, so we'll definitely kind of pull back the curtain on a lot of this stuff. And we'll always be transparent and clear with the American people, especially here in the second district. Yeah. So um, I hate to pick on you for your age, but I'm going to do it anyways, because <laughs> you're you're uh, I, I, I couldn't figure out if you're Gen Y or Gen Z. You're kind of like right in the border there. Um, yeah. You know, everyone's called us Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, yeah, Gen Z. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever you're more comfortable with. But. That is a pretty young age, and I know that there are some other people in Congress that are young. I mean, Madison Cawthorn, who I think was somewhat of a disaster, was, I think, was, what he, I think right now he's just 26. He's already done a couple of years. So this is, I mean, this is a positive development. I'm not going to get on your case about that at all, but there, um, are you afraid that your, your youth and inexperience might be an issue, or is it an advantage? I think it is an advantage, uh, definitely an asset, you know, when folks talk about experience, it's funny because on a lot of issues, I have the most experience in this race, um, which is kind of shocking because I am 25 years old. But if we want to break it down, you know, on the issue of something like gun control, for example, you know, a few weeks ago, a little bit over a month ago now, uh, I went to Washington, met with members of the House and Senate, like Senator Joni Ernst, Senator Lisa Murkowski, Senator Chris Murphy, Senator Mitch McConnell, um, members of both parties, uh, doing the job that Congresswoman Ann Wagner should already be doing, which is building common sense, which is building consensus around common sense gun control. Um, you know, Congress hasn't done anything in 30 years uh, to address the gun control, to, to address the gun, the gun crisis in America, uh, but through the work we've done in Washington with, with helps of my friends like David Hogg and other great uh, gun activists in Washington, we got the bipartisan framework, which turned into the bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is now the bipartisan Safer Communities Law. So I assisted in federal law that's going to help uh, keep kids safe here in schools, which is something Congresswoman Ann Wagner voted against and something she's been opposed to from her, the very start of her time in politics. Um, you know, we talk about an issue like uh, the health pandemic. You know, uh, last Monday I met with uh, healthcare professionals throughout the region, getting a briefing on 
the new BA5 COVID variant and monkeypox. And we're watching it closely and we're using our connections in Washington to, you know, advocating Congress for Congress to be proactive and providing resources to hospitals throughout the region um, to help to help push back against BA5 and monkeypox. Um, so, you know, we're just kind of already doing the job. You know, people won't have to imagine hard what it'll be like to have me in Congress. Um, you know, even my primary opponent, uh, they can talk about experience, but if we really want to break that down too, you know, they were elected in 20, at the end of 2019 and were sworn in January of 2020 and then the pandemic hit. So the legislature shut down. So they just really had their first year in the state legislature and now they're running on experience. Um, you know, worked in the governor's office for our state democratic party. I'm happy to have the experience to be with anyone in this race. Well, that's good for uh, for a young age like that. That's a lot of experience. Um, yeah, let's talk about uh, gun control a little bit here because, you know, we, Missouri, as you know, has this uh, Second Amendment Protection Act, SAPA, which is, I, if I read it correctly, it basically says that the local law enforcement is not able to uh, work with the federal government on anything that has to do with guns. I don't know if this is really legal, if this would stand up in any sort of court of law, but it's still it's still the law of the land at this point, though, isn't it? Uh, it's the fake law of Missouri land. You know, when I was in the governor's office, you know, something I heard time and time again, a, a common phrase was federal law, Trump state law. Mm-hmm. So if it were to really come down to it, federal law will always trump state law, especially on that gun issue, Yeah, uh, especially under this president um, and this uh, Department of Justice. And, you know, I don't see that being a problem. Well, I think a lot of people in Missouri would see that as being a problem because a lot of, you know, a lot of the more stubborn people in Missouri would say, well, you know, that's just the government trying to come in and take control and take my guns or something like that. And I don't know how to approach that subject with a lot of people without offending them in some way or another or telling them, look, you know, we're not after your guns, but there are federal laws that have to be uh, obeyed. Well, good luck getting that enforced with local law enforcement, because my impression is, even though I talked to several police officers today, as you and I both did in a a (laughs) protest earlier today, but I never had the opportunity to ask them what they think about this law, because are they intimidated in uh, working with the federal government because they have a $50,000 liability if they are found to be in violation of the Second Amendment Protection Act. Yeah. Um, so our police department, uh, really, a lot of police departments throughout the Second District are really great on this issue, actually. You know, when I was in the governor's office in 2016, Senate Bill 656 came up, which was the law which was a bill that governor nixon vetoed and then the legislature overrode the veto it's now the law that took away missouri's uh requirement to conceal carry Mm -hmm. so pretty much i can with a missouri license i can go into a gun shop and come out with an ar-15 in 15 minutes flat um it's frightening um that that, that's you know the case here in our state but it's what missouri republicans have pushed this state to become um you know, and the police, a lot of police departments pushed back against that law. And, you know, they're so uh, entangled in the iron grip of the NRA that they decided not even to listen to the police department on this issue. Um, and, you know, 
to kind of clear up the record on, you know, Democrats and guns, you know, at no point have I ever said, let's take away every gun from it, from every law abiding citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't believe that military style assault weapons should be, should belong on the streets uh, of any Missouri street, really. And we, we can do things to bring down the number, the numbers of gun deaths here in America, you know, even if we were to bring the number, say it's 40,000 and we were to bring it down to 30,000, that's 10,000 families who don't have to endure the pain that the families of Uvalde and Parkland and, and uh, Chicago and New York, uh, San Bernardino, um, all these families have had to endure tragedy uh, from senseless gun violence here in America. Um, right. And by the way, it happens on the streets of North St. Louis every single night. Yeah. So this is something that we can address and we should have the moral courage that our elected officials should have the courage to address. Yeah. But again, I, I, like I say, I think that, that it's, it's a, it's a hard sell for a lot of people in Missouri. And I think St. Louis and St. Louis metropolitan area, which is where you're at probably isn't as hard of a sell as it would be, you know, out in, you know, some of the more outlying areas or, you know, Southern Missouri or something like that, that would be harder sell, I would think. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be hard, but you know, my attitude towards campaign really towards everything is, you know, it's supposed to be hard, you know, (laughs) these issues, they make it to the federal level because they're difficult and, you know, it'll take time, but we can address these issues. And I think, again, we just have the courage to, uh, take bold, ambitious leadership towards them. Good, good. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about social inequity. Um, what do you see as being the biggest driver of social inequity in our country? And I want to go into this a little bit further here. And what I mean is that there are people that are marginalized and don't seem to have much luck getting out of that situation. And there are people who are privileged and seem to maintain that position generation after generation. And if you were to believe in, say, a true meritocracy, a lot of people talk about that word meritocracy. Well, if you believe in a true meritocracy, then every generation would have to stand on its own feet, right, and prove itself uh, and, and, and gain its own merits. But that's a fantasy, really. Um, so that being the case, what can government do without trading into the dangerous waters of socialism or some sort of forced equity? Um. You know, I think leveling the playing field, you know, when we talk about socialism, you know, we should talk more about Denmark and not Venezuela. Um, We should talk about how we can invest, how we we make sacrifice to the government in return for securities in our lives. So social security, for example, and it's actually one of the examples where we bridge the generational gap through this campaign. You know, when I talk to folks around my age, I talk about how, you know, growing up, I believe that social security was something largely for older folks, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I never thought it was something for me. But in reality, it's there for all of us. You know, if you were to, God forbid, lose a parent, uh, a spouse, or have some terrible, uh, unexpected diagnosis, social security is there to make sure that you have a little bit of breathing room going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of like how we bridge the gap on that issue. Um, 
again, socialism at its core, you know, and Wagner tries to make it a bad word, um, tries to say, you know, he's a democratic socialist or all those Democrats are socialists, you know, they want to take us to Venezuela, essentially. Um, when in reality, you know, the things around us, you know, are all socialism, our school system, we give money to our public, to our public schools and they provide education for our children. You know, our police departments are socialist, socialism. Uh, even the trash we have in our community, the trash men coming and picking up trash. Um, so I think how we address these issues starting is by breaking down how government actually works to everyday people, um, kind of educating the public on the issues. Um, One way, possibly, maybe, healthcare. I mean, what do you think about health of healthcare? Not necessarily socialized medicine sort of healthcare, but healthcare in the sense that when when people who are uh, at the lower end of the social equity scale come across a uh, you know a bad situation that doesn't put them out of business right because the leading cause of bankruptcy of personal bankruptcy in this country i understand is medical bills so everything's going great until junior breaks his leg and you got to go to the doctor and and now you're now you got this bill that's just put you over the edge and now you're in you're behind the eight ball now you're 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 bankrupt well do you think that uh, healthcare in a sense could be I want to stay away from the word socialist, but do you think healthcare, uh, uh, universal healthcare type of operation can help tip the balance uh, to a, to a better, more e- more equity society? Yes, and it's something that's actually attainable for us. You know, we kind of say that it's okay; we can have nice things too. Um, mm-hmm. Other country, other countries have universal healthcare. America can have it too. Um, I actually support. Senator Elizabeth Warren's healthcare plan, she laid it out pretty perfectly. Um, Obamacare laid the groundwork for universal healthcare. Uh, and in Congress, of course, I would vote to improve the, improve the Affordable Care Act uh, and eventually get us on track towards Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Okay. And another way of perhaps uh, balancing things out a little bit more is education. Can we go into that a little bit in terms of when uh, a lot of times, and it's not just in Missouri here. I lived many years out in California. It was the same way where a lot of your local schools are subsidized to a large degree by local property taxes. Well, you know what that cycle is, right? The, the, The spiral of death, I call it. You know, the lower your the lower your neighborhood is assessed, the lower amount of money you that uh, property taxes paid off to the schools, the schools start to go down and people say, well, this place isn't so good anymore. So they move out and that lowers the property value again. So how do we stop that spiral? Or is, or I should say, is that one way we can perhaps uh, uh, have more equity in our society? I think it is. Um, but I think it will be better handled at the local level with your county uh, county council. Mm-hmm. Um but on the topic of education, you know, I put forth a plan to create a K through 12 education that's centered around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And my higher education plan includes forgiving federal student loans. Um, you know, if the folks listening to this podcast or don't remember anything else, please remember this. For the cost of that tax cut in 2017 that Ann Wagner voted for, we could have forgiven every single federal student loan in the country. So when people always people always say, 
how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> we already are paying for it. You know, we're giving $1.7 trillion to Wall Street. We could be investing in everyday working class folks like folks here in the second district. Um, it's not so much a question of possibility. It's more of a question of priority. And Wagner's prioritizing Wall Street. I'm prioritizing Missouri second district, you know. Um, and if I were to forgive like $50,000 of your student debt, you then have that money off of your back to put money on a house. You can buy a car. You can start a business, start a family. You can just move on with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't believe it's morally just for the United States government to be in the business of putting tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt on the backs of 17 year olds. That's just yeah. uh, unspeakable. Well, what do you say to the people though, that, that would say, Hey, these kids, they, they decided to go to college. This was their choice. Uh, they should have to pay for it. I mean, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but let's hear you say it anyways. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, uh, this is about investing in our future. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, the federal government won't collapse. Our our society won't collapse because we said people don't have to pay uh, student loans back. You know, just to remind everyone, you know, student loans have been paused for the last two years, and the country, you know, the world is still spinning. Yeah, um, it's not something that's critical to our functioning government, and it's something that would actually create a larger return on investment than that $1.7 trillion that Ann Wagner put in the pockets of Wall Street. Yeah. And just for everybody listening out there, Ann Wagner is the uh, incumbent, the Republican incumbent in District 2 of Missouri. So just to make sure people understand what that uh, where that's coming from. <laughs> um, okay, good. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Let's move on to the next one. How about political inequity? Uh, and it's similar to social inequity, but you know what can be done about about political inequity and, and what's driving uh, what's driving the fact that the higher ups in politics always seem to get a good deal for themselves and their buddies. They all seem to get reelected. Um, you know, what sort of game are they playing to draw in all this campaign funding? And, and if they, even if they do leave government, they usually land in a really cushy job somewhere, uh, heading up departments mm-hmm. of, of the companies that they oversaw as Congress. And meanwhile, the rest of us, we continue to pay taxes, continue to to pay taxes and, you know, just try to maintain ourselves through the challenges of an ever increasing uh, what I would consider to be an authoritarian society. I mean, there's this sort of this distance really between politicians and the rest of the people. And that distance seems to be getting greater these days. Yeah. One way we push back against that is exactly what this campaign is, you know. I believe that everyday people deserve to be represented by everyday people. So we've been trying to uh, bring up an entirely new generation of leaders with us. Um, so you'll see me out campaigning for a candidate in Chicago named Nabila Saeed. She's amazing. We actually got her elected to the uh, to win the Democratic nomination in her district. Uh, or a guy like Maxwell Frost in Florida or my friend Justice Horn in in Kansas City, or my friend Sam in Ohio. Um, You know, it's it's really about everyday people just stepping up uh, in their communities to lead. You know, we've seen it work already in Congressman Cory Bush or Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Congressman Ilhan Omar or Congressman Jamal Bowman. Um, 
you know, it's everyday people just stepping up and, and taking leadership. And we're pushing back against that old guard a little bit in both parties. Um, yeah. So I'm actually, I'm actually excited about how we're going to balance uh, political inequity in the future. Yeah. Yeah. You're speaking about young people. I was just sort of amused uh, shortly before we got on the air right here. I saw this tweet coming from uh, the incumbent, Ann Wagner, and she's showing pictures of herself at the St. Charles Pachyderm Club. And I was struck by the fact that there wasn't a single young person in that crowd. I mean, the average age to me looked to be 65 or older. And uh, so, I mean, I think, what does this say about the type of people that you'll be drawing on in, in this next election? Yeah, you know, I think that kind of goes towards back to that bonfire in twenty in 2020. You know, we knew that from the very beginning, we'd be able to appeal to a broader swath of the electorate that Ann Wagner would just have a ton of tough time getting to. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as my primary opponent, too. Um, you know, I think we just appeal to young people, minorities. Again, those people who aren't necessarily hard to reach, but just often feel hardly reached. Um, you know, I think we have the ability to build that broader coalition across divisions of race, region, religion, gender, income, and age group. And that's because our candidate is a candidate who's, well, myself. Um, mm-hmm. I represent the district in more ways than one. And that's just something we haven't had here in the second district. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm excited about our chances. Yeah, yeah. Good. But how do you how do you get young people to sign up, though? I mean, that, that to me is a challenge. Gotcha. Right? gotcha. <laughs> yeah, so... From day one, uh, I was going around to high schools and colleges, just talking to kids about voter registration and voter education, because those two kind of brother and sister, they go together. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it started with auditorium talks and then kids DMing me saying like, hey, we're trying to get like a political group going on campus. Can you like come back and talk to us? And We'd love to help out with your campaigns. So I said, of course, I'll come back. And we've been going around to high schools and colleges throughout the district and the state of Missouri. And, you know, it's kind of just snowballed into an army of young people who are now out there for us. You know, I already kind of had a connection. Well, one, because I'm young. Mm-hmm. And in 2020, I helped organize a bunch of uh, other folks throughout my generation uh, to march on the streets for George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And we kept those same kids involved to march to the polls for Joe Biden. And now we have an army of young people marching to the doors for us in this campaign. Um, so yeah. to put it simply, how do we get people out to vote? Uh, we put forth a candidate who they can see themselves in, who inspires them, and who represents the future of our district and our party. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm you know, incredibly humbled at you know, the chance to represent them in Congress and we're going to do our best to leave it all, the, all out there on the field. Good. So you're you're basically working that ground game with the young folks out there and getting them involved in it. I think that's yeah, a great thing. Yeah. yeah. I know when my own son was was growing up, he's not that way anymore. He's like 27 now. But uh, when he was real young, able to vote, he said, why should I vote? Now, he's living in California still. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I just I just had to, like, you know, give him the whole speech. But then it's like dad giving his son a speech again. He's not going to listen to me. But uh, you know, he eventually came around, and, and he's, he's, he's voting now and getting more involved in things. Um, let's talk about how this—have uh, you ever heard of this organization called the Sunrise Organization, by the way? 
I have Sunrise Movement. Yeah. Sunrise Movement. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I had an opportunity to interview them on a, on a podcast uh, yeah, quite a few years ago now on a different podcast. I was really struck by the fact that, uh, you know, I felt like an old dude. I'm, you know, I'm in my early 60s already. And I said, wow, how can people get involved? And they, and they pretty much said, well, we want young people. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> that's fine. I won't take offense to that. But uh, but I, I, I like the energy that they had. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you're aware of them. Yeah, yeah. Sunrise, they're they're really great. Um, they've actually kind of helped us with our, you know, climate, our climate agenda here in a second. You know, I'm a proud champion of the Green New Deal, one of only two Missouri Democrats at the, at the federal level who openly support the Green New Deal. You know, I believe that, you know, we can achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2030, and we should uh, want to achieve carbon emissions by 2030, net zero carbon emissions by 2030. Yeah. Well, the only problem I have with the Green New Deal is is I like it. I, I've I've read that that it's only like what about a page and a half, and I've I've read yeah, it. Yeah, I was um, gonna I was I was actually gonna mention that like everyone should read it because it's not that long, no, and it's yeah. not it's not a law. It's just a resolution yeah. that says X, Y, and Z is a problem, and we should address X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, and I I tell you I can get behind every single thing in the Green New Deal, but. My only hesitation is it's all tied together, right? Because they they put indigenous rights in there, they put uh, uh, collective bargaining uh, in there, they put in you know uh, along with the environmental uh, concerns. And I've I've always wondered, you know, does this make like a big boat anchor then? Because you know these are these are good things to work on one at a time, but tying them all together is is um, at least in in my old guy's experience, if you put too much uh, too much into the boat, it's going to sink. I think the fear. I'm not saying like you're wrong. I'm just saying I think the 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 concern with breaking it up would be the same concern of breaking up infrastructure bill from Build Back Better. Mm-hmm. Uh, both two really great policies. Uh, we got infrastructure done, and then they said, "Oh, well, we'll push Build Back Better to a later date." Like the times we live in demand bold, progressive leadership. I I just couldn't imagine President. Roosevelt's saying, you know what, we'll push that Green New Deal and we'll push that New Deal to a later date. Or yeah. President Johnson saying, let's not shoot for the moon. Or President Obama saying, let's let's push health care out to another date. Um, the yeah. times we live in, you know, demand that bold progressive leadership. OK, yeah, that's good. Fair enough. Um, are you well, I'm sure you're aware of Citizens United and uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and so that's uh that's the uh i think it was 2010 supreme court decision that basically equated free speech with money or i'm, not, I'm sorry free speech with corporations and so therefore corporations mm-hmm. could put as much money as they wanted into their free speech as possible which basically opened up the floodgates and let all kinds of campaign money come flooding in could you kind of enumerate in your mind you know what are the what are the issues coming off of that uh, decision yeah uh Citizens United destabilized our entire political financial system. Um, it's allowed for a lot of dark money to pour into politics and for a lot of special interests to cripple, not maybe not, maybe not cripple, uh, put a, put a lot of elected officials in a chokehold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's the better way to say it. Um, I'm proud to say that, you know, in, in our campaign, I can't speak for anyone else, but in this campaign, you know, we don't accept a dollar from Wall Street. We don't accept a dollar from the oil lobby. We don't we don't accept a dollar from the NRA. Um, 
I'm a product of everyday working class people and that's who funds my campaign. Uh, and that's kind of given me, you know, a little bit of freedom, freedom that other politicians just don't have. Uh, you know, I don't take their money because I don't need it. You know, we have enough money to, you know, get our message out there and we have a movement. You know, I think that's number, that's number one way that should beat money is the movement. And we've created that and I intend to keep that going and for as long as we can. Okay, good. So how about uh, this thing that they call dialing for dollars? I'm, I'm sure you know what that is. It's it's basically, it's it, and it's been talked about on this program as well as other programs like Ralph Nader's Radio Hour, which I listen to quite faithfully. And basically it is this, where members of Congress spend a majority of their time raising campaign money, and we call it dialing for dollars because they literally go off site off of a, you know, they're not on government property anymore. They go into a private site they pick up the phones and they start dialing for dollars. And I've heard that members of Congress, some members, not all members, but some members of Congress spend as little as two hours a day on their job because they're spending the rest of their time on the phone raising money for their campaigns. And this is one of the crazy things that goes on because of Citizens United, you know. Um, yeah, so, and, and what's worse, though, is that they don't have time to write their bills or really work on their bills. So, um, many of these bills are are written by the lobbyists for Congress. That's a nightmare. I mean, it, putting aside uh, organizations like Move to Amend, I mean, what would you do or what can you do to fight this trend? Um, so luckily, I won't have to do that because, like, our our campaign comes from because of like the uniqueness of my candidacy. Um, we've been able to draw national attention. So we've got donors from folks, I think almost all 50 states um, who dig into their pockets, you know, college kids from all across the country has given up some of their Starbucks budget to this campaign. Uh, union workers pitching in, uh, pitching in a few dollars, teachers pitching in, nurses uh, pitching in what they can. Um, and when it all, when it comes from all across the country, that adds up really quickly. And the larger our profile has grown, the more and more dollars we've seen. Um, so I know that I won't, you know, have to do that because of the following we've created. Um, but I think, you know, it also comes with, you know, helping elect grassroots candidates uh, to Congress in the House and the Senate. Um, so, you know, I'll spend more of my time uh, instead of dialing for dollars, going out to help elect Democrats all across the country. Um, Get across okay. that finish line. Okay. Well, if you can't fight them legally in terms of like, you know, passing another amendment, that's probably the next best thing then, right? Just to try to <laughs> set up a situation so people don't have to dial for dollars because that's uh, that becomes excessive. But don't you also think that raising that much money is problematic in itself? I mean, why, why do networks, the television networks, charge so much to, to run these advertisements? And, and this goes back to my listening to Ralph Nader. Apparently in the good old days, uh, networks were required to put on a certain amount of, of public service uh, um, time for politicians uh, you know, during a lot of certain periods of time. But that went out the window pretty quickly, and um, especially during the 1980s. Uh, so, I mean, what do we do? I mean, what, yeah, I what can think, we do about you know, that? I think, I think that's really hard. Uh, too, because, you know, the way the average American consumes information uh, and it only increase going forward is through social media. 
-hmm. And now there are just so many different outlets for folks to, to get information that it's hard to set up like just one source again. Um, Mm -hmm. I think part of the answer is cracking down on social media. Uh, We can't just trust that Jack or or Mark Zuckerberg, they're going to do the right thing. Um, So I think some federal regulation on social media will be a pretty good idea. Um, but again, our team's going to have to like look into the way to the best way for us to go about it. Yeah. Um, that, now that's a but, tough problem there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, but again, like, like I said at the top, you know, I'm a straight shooter. When I tell you, I don't know something, I'll be straight with the district. Uh, we don't know at the time, but I like to know what I'm talking about. So once we, do all the research and information we need, we'll put forth a plan on how it benefits everyone in our district. Okay. Um, another question here is really about the Democratic Party itself. And I, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed. I consider myself an independent, even though I always find myself going to like these, you know, these protests and such where I keep seeing you <laughs> doing the same thing. We were out there baking in the sun earlier today. Um, but why is it the, the Democratic Party in some ways just can't seem to get their act together in the state houses across the country? And what I mean is that many seats in the state governments go uncontested. And I happen to live in one right now. It's, it's, it was uncontested the last time around. It's going to be uncontested this time around. The way I see Missouri Democrats is that we are on a 10-year mission to flip Missouri blue by the end of the decade. Um, and the way we get there is not by begging Jason Kander, Claire McCaskill, or Jay Nixon to come and save us. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, for folks who don't know, the three largest fundraisers and successful Democrats of the 21st century here in Missouri. Um, but again, they, yeah, so the way we get there is by investing in resources here at the local level, uh, whether it's your local legislative uh, Democratic committee, your county Democratic committee, your senatorial Democratic committee, even your judicial Democratic committee. Um, It takes us investing time, energy, and resources into that level and building our Democratic infrastructure. You know, I didn't really have as big as a big of a name as I did, as I do right now before this race, but I can assure you guys that I will be, I will play a significant role um, and invest in Missouri's in Missouri Democratic Party's uh, infrastructure going forward in the decade, um, and that should translate into having the money on the ground to uh, field candidates all across the all across the state, and having the resources for those candidates to actually compete against Republicans. Because when you make uh, those races competitive, it draws money time and resources away from Republicans at the top of the ticket so that we actually could win a state, uh, a United States Senate seat or a governor's uh, race or an uh, auditor's race or attorney general's race. Um, so yeah, it's about having someone who can, you know, bring in those national resources to invest here in Missouri. And I talked to Stacey Abrams and she told me how she flipped Georgia blue was by going around the country and talking to anyone who listened about why they should invest in Georgia with a PowerPoint. Um, mm. I'm not just going to go, I'm not going to go around with a PowerPoint, but I'm definitely right. going to make the case to a lot of folks about why Missouri is worth saving. You know, I do believe in Missouri and I believe our state is worth saving. 
Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty heavy lift, and 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 kudos to Stacey Abrams for being able to do that in Georgia. That was uh, a really um, tough uh, a tough thing for her to do, and she certainly has the personality and and the charisma to to pull that off. But that's that's not an easy thing to do. I think you know this is just me talking, but I would think in in any political party, whether you're talking about the Democrats or the Republicans. You have to get in to influence the top level members there to um, to change your mind, change, you know, where they're putting their money. And and I think a lot of times they look at it like it's a horse race. OK, we're not going to bet on you know, on on um, half of the horses out there because we don't think they're going to run. Well, you don't know. You've never seen them run before. So um, you, know, yeah. you can't just look at them and determine, you know, it might be a really ugly horse that kind of comes in first. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, they, they kind of. Um, I would think there'd be a heavy lift, but I think it's a necessary lift in order to survive. No, yeah, I definitely think you're right. Um, it's kind of reflective in this race. You know, a lot of folks thought we'd crash and burn by last December, but, but here we are mm-hmm. uh, on the verge of either being elected to represent the Democrats in Missouri's second district or on the verge to fighting for Missouri Democrats all across this state and helping progressives get elected all, all across the country. Yeah. Um, what do you think um, of the second district, though? Do you think that's just on just you know taking a direction of the wind right here? But do you think that's going to be the most likely one to flip in Missouri? I do. Um, again, it was the closest congressional district in the country between Trump and Joe Biden, a hundred and fifteen votes. Um, I I've heard so many times that if I ran in twenty twenty, we'd be running for re-election right now. Um, I do believe that, again, Missouri, we can flip it blue by the end of the decade, and we start by flipping this second congressional district. That's where we make our big first mark. And then we use that uh, that momentum going forward to bring in those national resources to invest in areas all across the state. So, you know, I don't want to just create a bunch of me's. I just want to invest in progressive candidates uh, or candidates who can go into those rural areas and flip those seats. You know, we have great young Democratic talent all across this state, and I intend to use my platform, my voice to help bring them up. Good. Yeah, I was um, I I unfortunately am no longer in the second district. I'm now in the eighth district because of gerrymandering. This has just been a crazy year for gerrymandering. Um, (sighs) So now I'm in uh, in Jason Smith's area. Who, by the way, has the lowest uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the poverty rate has has uh, lowest in the in the state? Uh, somebody had told me recently it was the thirteenth lowest in the nation, um, and yet he still dominates there. And we talked to Randy McCallion recently. She, as you know, is running for uh, running going to be running against him in the next election. And again, there's no other Democrats that run against her in the primary, so we know she's going to go all the way through to November. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at her district? I mean, what do you think about that district? Yeah, I've actually met Randy. I think, uh, no, I think, I know. We actually were together on the day I filed. It was the same day she filed to run for office. Oh, okay. Um, I think she's great. Um, like when I say there's great young Democratic talent all across the state, she's definitely on that list. Um I told her that day, like, I think you have a, a huge role to play in our party uh, going forward over the next decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so her district in particular, 
it's definitely an uphill battle. But again, hard things are supposed to be hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, after the primary, I'm going to do everything I can to help her uh, in that district. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think it'd be that hard be, based on, on the, the record that uh, Jason Smith has in that area. And I, I, I never pass up an opportunity to give him a hard time. I actually got to talk <laughs> to him live one time. He didn't know it was me. Uh, and I was very respectful to him and everything, but uh, uh, it's I, I just don't see how it's a phenomenon to me how a person can be so um, detrimental to their area and I, Democrat, Republican, whatever, and and still get back on get get reelected. Uh, it's just got to be advertising. It's got to be the big money or something, right? Yeah, um, it's either money or movement. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe Randy has what it takes to create a movement down there in that district. Um, see, I'll definitely do what I can. Everything down, everything I can down there to help rally up the troops. Okay, what's our call to action here? What what can what can our listeners do to learn more about your campaign? Yeah, so of course you can go. You know, I'm 25. Our team is amazing. My PR my PR team is great. Um, we understand social media, so we make it really simple for everyone. Um, it's Ray Reed MO across every single social media. You can find out more about me, more about the campaign. You can follow our campaign by the hour, if not up to every minute or so, on Twitter at Ray Reed MO. Um, but you know, my call to action I say this every time I give a speech um, I don't care who you support in whatever race. Whenever you think you've done enough in this, in this election, knock on one more door, make one more phone call, send in one more dollar, make one more text. I promise that makes all the difference in the end, and it'll help us move the needle in this election. Um, okay. I really believe that, you know, Missouri is worth saving. Uh, my generation in particular is something really special. I believe that when we all participate, not even the sky is our limit. Um, and we are the change that we seek. So let's get out there and win in this election, guys. That's well put. And that's uh, Ray Reed M.O. That's R-A-Y-R-E-E-D-M-O dot com. Ray Reed dot com. Okay. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. We've been yeah. talking with Ray Reed, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 2nd District of Missouri. Ray, thank you for stopping by today and joining us at Democracy on the Move. And good luck in your campaign. Thank you, Dan. You take care. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>